Uh, this is our second part of our three-part series on servolutions. And Sharon outlined last week what servolution is all about, having a revolution in our church to the a heart of service. And last week she spoke about the type of church that we might want to become and try to emulate with the city and the hills in the U.S. and their acts of service and their slogan, A-OK, acts of kindness. And today is more of a biblical basis, a, a, a background for why serve and the point of that. So to start off, I want you to think about your earliest childhood memory of being disobedient to your parents. Mum, don't laugh. <laughs> I want you to try to think of that and hold that in your mind for a second. Mine, and when I was about five years old, we moved as a family up to Papua New Guinea and went to a beautiful island on Eastern Britain Island and the place we were was a, a church high school up there. Dad was working there and mum was a sort of nurse in the campus up there. And so I was about seven, eight years old at the point of this particular incident that I'm going to relate. And uh, I used to often go down to the local creek. It was a beautiful place. I want you to try to picture this. It's a beautiful beach with this creek running through out to the ocean with this beautiful sand uh, low water in the creek that we used to just be able to play for hours. It was awesome. And when mum couldn't find me, she knew that was one of the places to look. This creek was accessed through a quite a narrow sort of road or track, and there was heaps of farmland around. So they used to grow all these tapioca bushes, um, plants, sort of supplied the high school with all the produce they needed. And one day, I was down at this creek swimming, and as our custom was, there's a whole bunch of boys we were doing it our natural, and uh, actually, don't picture that. Um, and <laughs> mum came looking for me, and I knew she was coming looking for me, and I didn't want to particularly finish up our play at this particular point in time in the swimming, and so I quickly went and tried to hide in the tapioca bushes. And as she would call out, she didn't know where I was, so I kept pushing deeper backwards into these bushes, and uh, eventually one of my friends got me in. And mum knew where I was, but she couldn't see me, so she kept calling out, Oh, come on, get out of there, we've got to go, you're in trouble already, come on. I kept pushing deeper and deeper. Eventually, I hit a wasp nest. Not just any wasp nest, picture the biggest, meanest, angriest European wasp you can think of. And I came out of there quicker than Usain Bolt on the 100-metre track. And uh, it was quite embarrassing because here I am doing a bit of a dancing jig in front of mum, completely naked. And uh, I've never been really so humiliated in my life, I think, up to that point. And uh, I've never had such an immediate consequence for disobedience. And uh, mum, of course, just laughed. And uh, that added to the humiliation and then I copped it when I got back home. But, you know, it's, it's often the case where our choices lead us to some form of consequence. And it reminds me of the story of Jonah in the Bible where he was running away from God when he was asked to serve. He didn't want to do it. So he ran away, caught the boat, ended up shipwrecked, ended up in the belly of the whale for three days. And the story is found in Jonah in the Old Testament. I don't really want to dwell on that story too much today, but it does give us an example of consequences when we fail to follow God's instructions. And it's not because God is vengeful or he wants to strike us for being disobedient, it's more a natural consequence of our choices. 
God says, this is what I want you to do, that this is what will happen if you don't do, do that. And it's a natural consequence. So when it comes to this concept that Sharon introduced of servolution, what is it that God's asking of us as his followers? There are many passages in the Bible that talk about what God wants us to do for him. And some of these texts are, are very specific to different times in our lives. Micah 6 verse 8 talks about God requiring us to love mercy, to act justly and walk humbly with God. James chapter 1 tells us to look after orphans and widows and the needy in their distress and keep ourselves from becoming polluted in the world. And it says this is the religion that God accepts as pure and faultless. Today I want to focus on one particular passage in the Bible and it's Philippians 2. And if you have your Bibles, open up to it. If not, it'll be up on the screen for those down the bottom if you could see it up that high. Um, Philippians 2, and it's verses 1 to 11. So I'd like to read it with you. In the New International Version, this particular passage is titled Imitating Christ's Humility. And it says this, verse 2, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There are two levels on which we can understand this particular passage, and I'll go through the verses in a little bit more detail. But first of all, from this passage, we see a very powerful Bible truth that gives us great insight into the nature and the work of who Jesus is and what he does. It tells us of his equality with God, how he's 100% God and 100% human, all at the same time. It tells us of his obedience to the will of his Father, how he died on the cross. But it also tells us of his ultimate exaltation, his ultimate raising up how every knee will bow, every tongue confess that he is Lord. But secondly, and just as important as the practical message that comes out of this, Paul is writing to the church in Philippi to instruct them how they are to live. It's very practical. It's not a passage about who Jesus is so much as it is a passage from a letter to a church giving them Jesus as their example. It tells them they are to follow his example. And by doing so, they can successfully live the Christian life. It gives Jesus, who was and is God, as their supreme example. It is he who we are to follow. It is his actions we are to copy. And we're to be imitators of God. 
So this is the practical part of the text. Have this mindset, this attitude among yourselves, which is in Christ. If we are to try to live according to the principles found in those first four verses we read, we must possess the same mind or the same attitude as what God has. That's what Paul's saying. Verses 5 to 11 show us how this is to be done by describing a servant. And it's described from the example that Jesus gave. So when we become a follower of Jesus, we're supposed to become more like Jesus. We can't allow Christ to live through us and not be a servant. It's only through a servolution that we can be obedient to God's call on our lives. So before we can understand what those last five verses have to say, we have to read the instruction given to us in verse 5. Verse 5 sets the stage, and Geordie, if you can pop verse 5 up for us again. It sets the tone of what is required. Verse 5 tells us to do what Jesus did, to think what he thought, to have the same attitude towards servanthood that he had. Verses 6 to 11 spell out in very descriptive terms not only what that attitude was, but how it was lived out in his life. You see, attitude remains quite an abstract concept until it's physically expressed. Attitude always determines our actions because our actions always demonstrate our attitude. Who we are is what we do. We don't do because of who we are. In verse 5, coming on the heels of verses 1 to 4, tell us where to be servants just as Jesus was a servant. You might ask, how was he a servant? Well, let's look at verses 6 to 11. It's easy to say I can't do what Jesus did because he was God and I'm not. That's the easy thing to say. But we can have the same attitude that drives service. We can have the same attitude towards servanthood that he had. And there are five things we can say about serving. Five key principles that come out of this text that I'd like to go through with you this morning. First one is that being a servant means giving up my rights for others. In verse 6, Paul makes it very clear that Jesus was and is God, not just a prophet, not just a teacher, not a healer, he's God. But the next thing he says is he did not consider it equality with God, but he did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. In other words, Jesus didn't hold on to his rights as God. He was not looking out for himself, but for others. He surrendered his rights for you and me. He gave up his privileges in order to come as a man and suffer the death we deserve. Although Jesus had access to all his power and privilege to which being God entitled him, he could have exploited that privilege and that power while he was a man on earth dominate his creation he didn't Jesus considered his being God an opportunity for service and obedience his life demonstrated that and instead of using all he was to his own advantage he used it for others for those who had nothing all of the authority and the power available to him became a channel of giving rather than a conduit for judgment His focus was not on being served, but upon serving others, not exalting himself, but of emptying himself in obedience to the Father. 
contrast is pretty clear between the value system of this world and the value system of Jesus. You see, in our world, he who has the most money, has the most power, tends to have the most prestige and is worth the most. Yet, in the economy of Jesus, it's the opposite. Those who are the highest are those who don't live for themselves, but live for others. Those who would be the greatest among us are those who are our servants. If you and I are ever going to be servants and follow Jesus' model, we have to have the same attitude as what God has. We're going to have to give up our rights, our privileges, indifference to others. So principle one is that servanthood means giving up my rights to others. Number two is that being a servant means becoming less so that others can become more. If we look at verse 7, and it should be up on the screen for you, he emptied himself. He literally poured himself out, made himself nothing, made himself insignificant. How did he do it? By taking on the form of a slave, the very nature of a servant. He came as a servant, not as God, And he gave himself for others, even though all of creation should be given to him. He became the servant. This is at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. It means to lose our life in order to save it. It means to be emptied of ourselves in order to be filled with him and his passion for others. Now, it's no wonder that many people find the whole wealth and health version of Christianity to be so attractive. Because it's about getting instead of giving to others. It's about the fact that I've just lost my place. Give me a second. Uh, It's about being served instead of serving others, and it's about God obeying us instead of God or us obeying God. Our fallen nature tends not to be interested so much in being emptied. Rather, we want to be filled. We want everything to come towards us. Yet, it runs contrary to our sinful nature to become less so that others can become more. But if we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to follow his example, if we're going to be servants, then we need to allow others to become more at our expense. So principle two is that servanthood means becoming less so that others can become more. Principle three is servanthood means being obedient, whatever the cost. If you look at verse 8, Jesus humbled himself. Now, it's impossible for us to grasp the depth of that, to understand the intensity of what God's really telling us here. He who made all men, who knew the hearts of all men, who had authority over all men, humbled himself and allowed himself to be executed by men. But not just any execution. This was the cross. It was not simply a form of execution in Roman times. It was the lowest form of execution, reserved for the lowest class of people, for those who had no standing and no rights. That Jesus should die on a cross was indeed a scandal, as Paul says in Galatians 5, verse 11. In the world Paul shared with the Philippians, crucifixion was the lowest anyone could stoop so to. Crucifixion was the cruelest form of official execution in the Roman Empire, and it was not the conversation of polite company. 
As a result, because of the cruelty of all the executioners, the conspirators aren't really that well known. They didn't really want to talk about it. But it's on the cross that the true nature of God is revealed. God's love. He came to give himself for us, to die for us, and he died at our hands. Because that's what it took to redeem us, to buy us back from the consequence of our sin. So there's nothing he will ever ask of us that he has not yet already done himself. We can never give up as much as he did. We can never humble ourselves as much as he did. But we must, however, be willing to do whatever he asks, whenever he asks, wherever he asks. For many of us, I don't know about you, but over the course of my life when I think back to it, we've already predetermined the things that God wants us to do. We have these set parameters of service that we put in a box. And we say, I will only serve in such and such a place or in this, that way, or on this or that day. We've convinced ourselves that God would never ask us to do anything outside of those boxes he's created us to do. In reality, we've simply decided we're not going to listen to him when he asks us to go outside those boxes. We have selective obedience, and that's not real obedience at all. Genuine discipleship involves being obedient to Jesus, whatever the cost, wherever the call, whenever however he asks. There are no part-time partial disciples. With Jesus, it's either all or nothing. And he says that in Revelation that we'll be able to see in church. So principle three is that servanthood means being obedient whatever the cost. Principle four is that servanthood will be rewarded. If we look in verses nine to 11, because Jesus was obedient, because he humbled himself, because he was willing to pay the price, he will be exalted. And the principle here is this, that God rewards our humble, obedient service. Maybe not here on earth. He doesn't promise that. But if you look at Matthew 23, verse 11, and it's up on the screen, it says, The greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. In James 4, verse 10, it says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. See, not all of God's rewards are for this life, they're for the life to come. We have to live with heaven in mind, not on this earth. And if you were here two weeks ago and you heard the students talking about their Thornco service trips, you would have heard about the difference they were making and how rewarding that was for them working with these kids seeing their actions have an impact on these kids on a daily basis that's an immediate reward but it's not the reward God promises us principle five is that being a servant is more about being transformed than it is about doing there's no genuine life in Christ that is not at the same time by the power of the Holy Spirit, transforming us into the likeness of Christ. Any religion that puts itself above others is not and cannot be a true version of what God wanted us to be. True Christianity, true following of Jesus. If Christ, being God, humbled himself to become a servant for others, then how can we as his followers, who aren't God, in any way exalt ourselves, put ourselves up on a pedestal? 
he died for others, how can we fail to live for others? You know, we tend to look for that one big experience. And if I look back over the course of my life as a follower of Jesus, I can picture this so many times happening. We look for that one experience, that one big thing, where we can demonstrate our faithfulness to God. Demonstrate our servanthood by giving of ourselves in some heroic fashion. But the reality is, that's not usually how it happens. In reality, it's the small, everyday, somewhat uneventful occurrences of our lives that we demonstrate our attitude of servanthood. This attitude, this mindset of serving others instead of being served, of giving rather than getting, of obeying God rather than dominating around us is lived out in the myriad of interpersonal experiences we have and exchanges we have every day. How we treat the checkout person at the supermarket, how we treat the person collecting our rubbish, it's most often not seen in how we treat those who are socially above us, but those who we treat who are socially below us. Principle five is that servanthood is becoming an imitator of Jesus. It's the mindset, the attitude. So what does all this mean? I'm sure we want our lives to matter. I'm sure that we want to be in service to God. It's the reason we do the things we do sometimes. Whatever profession you're in, we chase leadership positions, we chase promotions, we chase whatever it is we chase to make a difference. We encourage our kids to go to uni, get a good job, in the hope that they too can make a difference in the world around them. We try to make enough money for ourselves and our needs so that we can give extra to give in service to God. We want to be able to do these things. But these things alone won't change the world, and they're not what God made us for. God made each one of us with unique talents, personalities, skill sets. And according to Ephesians 4 gave us these skill sets, these talents and abilities to build up, build up the church, build up our communities, build up those around us. We get the most joy and make the biggest difference when we use our God-given talents, gifts and abilities to serve others. And according to Scripture, there are eight blessings we receive, we experience when we serve others rather than have a mindset of just for ourselves. The first one, and they'll be up on the screen, the first one is that serving allows us to discover and develop our spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12 compares the church to a human body. Just like our bodies are made up of many parts serving specific functions, the church is made up of people with different skills and abilities. And alone, maybe some of these pieces aren't that useful. Maybe they are. But together... We create something really beautiful. And when these abilities are united in the service of others, there's nothing that God can't do through us as His church. Blessing number two is that serving allows us to experience miracles. In John chapter 2, it's the story of Jesus at the wedding at Cana. He's at this wedding and the couple, the family putting on this... uh, party after the wedding is running out of wine for their guests and they're panicking what do we do this is horrible we can't have this happen this is such a embarrassing thing to happen socially in our society so jesus says to the servants 
fill all those big jars to the brim with water. And when they served the water to the guests, it was the best quality wine they'd had all the week long of their party. The guests never knew what had happened. They had no idea they were running out, that it was water originally. Who knew about the miracle? The servants. The servants were the ones who witnessed that miracle. And it's the same and it's true for us as well. When we serve, we're the ones who see the miracles that Jesus performs for us, for the communities we're serving. It's not going to be the people receiving that that, that, that recognize it. They see it. It's us. So as we serve, we get to experience miracles. We see God at work. Blessing number three is that serving allows us to experience the joy and the peace that comes from obedience to God. 1 Peter 4 verse 10 and 11 says that each of us should use whatever gift we've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus. Serving is a form of worship. It's a way for us to express our gratitude for what Jesus has done for us and to share the love and the grace we've been given. So when we serve, we experience joy and peace because we're being obedient to God's call on our lives. Blessing four is that serving helps us to become more like Jesus. We shift our focus from ourselves onto others when we serve. We begin to see others as Jesus sees them. And we see Jesus in others. It changes our perspectives and our attitudes to others when we treat people differently. We can't be selfish. We can't think of ourselves only when we're serving other people. It shifts our mindset and it helps us to imitate more and more what Jesus was. Blessing five, serving surrounds us with other Christians who can help us follow Jesus better. See, when we're working side by side with other people, a bond inevitably forms. This was part of God's plan for how our church was supposed to work. That's why in Hebrews 10, Paul tells us to spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, but encouraging one another. Spurring ourselves on to good deeds supports and encourages each other to keep following Jesus, keep doing the things that he wants us to do, to draw closer to him. And as we serve as we work together, we support each other in that service. Blessing six is that serving increases our faith. I don't know about you, but I can look back over my life. In the times that I had the lowest faith that I can think of, usually preceded some form of service act. And it was after serving I felt my faith increase. It's as we move out of our comfort zones that God increases our faith by revealing new potential. Maybe it's in ourselves. Maybe it's in our church. When we see what He can do, when His power's at work within us, we begin looking for doors that He's opening rather than pushing through the doors that He's shutting. The ones He's already closed. Blessing seven is that serving allows us to experience God's presence in our lives in new ways. Encouragement and healing tend to go hand in hand. As we encourage others, as we serve others, 
and they find healing and they find the blessing, we're encouraged. The reason so many people who go on mission trips say they came home feeling like they um, they got more than what they actually gave. It's what our Stormco kids said two weeks ago. Every year when they return, they say the same thing. Man, I felt like we didn't do much, but boy, we got a lot back from it. And blessing eight is that serving is good for our soul. Studies have shown that volunteering is so good for the mind and the body that it can ease symptoms of stress and depression. Tapping into our gifts and our passions builds self-confidence, energy, and strength. Serving others can also be the best distraction from our own worries and cares. And just recently, Dr. Darren Morton, in his book, Live More Happy, describes and outlines the research that proves that service to others helps to bring happiness and decrease depression and stress in the server's life. I recommend you read the book. I know some of the admin team here are going through the Live More Happy program or Live More program. Yet, for some reason, we make all sorts of rational explanations for not serving. I don't have time. So busy. What would I do? I don't know what I'd do. Oh, they've, they've already got enough people. They don't need me. Oh, I don't have any special skills or, or things that I can contribute. Oh, I can't play guitar and stand up the front. Or oh, I hate speaking in public. I don't have enough money to serve like they're asking me to give again. I don't have enough money for my own needs. Yet, if you actually look at the research, to be in the top 10% of people in the world for income, all you need is $21,170 in an annual year. And you're in the top 10%. The reality is, God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. And uh, this week, um, Rob Wareham took our worship at staff yesterday. I've been filling in here for a couple of weeks. And I want to read a couple of the things he, he copied out. These are from um, a few of his devotional books. And they really inspired me. And this first one is from an unknown author. And it says, We must remember that Christ will not lead us to greatness through an easy or self-indulgent life. An easy life does not lift us up, but only takes us down. Heaven is always above us, and we must continually look toward it. Some people always avoid things that are costly, things that require self-denial, self-restraint, and self-sacrifice. Yet it is hard work and difficulties that ultimately lead us to greatness. For greatness is not found by walking the moss-covered path laid out for us through the meadow. It is found by being sent to carve out your own path with your own hands. Are you willing to sacrifice to reach the glorious mountain peaks that God's purpose for you? The second one is a poem by Maltby Babok. And it says this, Be strong. We're not here to play, to dream, to drift. We have, heard work to, uh, sorry, we have hard work to do and loads to lift. Shun not the struggle. Face it. It's God's gift. Be strong. Say not the days are evil, who's to blame? Or fold your hands as in defeat, oh shame. Stand up, speak out, and bravely, in God's name, 
be strong. It matters not how deep entrenched the wrong, how hard the battle goes, the day, how long. Faint not, fight on. Tomorrow comes the song. You know, God calls us to have the same mindset he has, to be of service to others, knowing that the reward may not come now, but later. And, you know, God used men and women with similar doubts as what we have at times to change the course of history. Moses didn't think he was a leader or a speaker, but God worked through Moses to bring Israel out of slavery. David was the youngest and therefore most insignificant of all of the sons. But God worked through David to defeat the giant and eventually made him a king. Paul used to kill Christians before he met Jesus, but he went on to become one of the most highly regarded and most prolific writers and church planters in church history. William Wilberforce fought for over 20 years to abolish slavery throughout the English British Empire. But he was racked with guilt and shame and fear that he wasn't good enough, that he wasn't worthy, that God wouldn't want to use him, someone like him. And initially, he didn't take up the call for almost four years. Are you here to serve or are you here to be served? Is your attitude like the world's? Or is it like Jesus' attitude? Are you going through the motions of service or are you becoming a servant? The example has been set. The call's pretty clear. All that remains today is your response, your decision, your commitment. Will you imitate Jesus or not? There's a song that encapsulates this attitude of service and being willing to do whatever God asks of us. It's based on Isaiah 6 verse 8. God's commission to the prophet Isaiah. By mercy me, you've probably heard it before, but every time I listen to it, it just gets me. And if you ask my kids, every time a song comes on in the car that I just absolutely love, I tend to belt it out a little bit and sing it. Um, I pray that Jesus will fill your heart with both the desire to be more like him, to serve him in whatever capacity you
know, the purpose of today is not to guilt anyone. We serve as we're called. Today is about encouraging you to try to emulate the mindset of Jesus. To have the same attitude, and he tells us, have the same attitude within you. I love the Bible reference in the song where it says, Whom shall I send? Who will go for me? Direct quote from Micah 6. It's Isaiah, I should say. And Isaiah's response is, Here am I, send me. Let's pray. Father God, this morning, as we're challenged by this three-week topic of changing our church to be more service-oriented and being able to serve others, Lord, we pray that you will help us to have the mindset that you have, the mindset that you demonstrated when you were here on earth. You were God, you came as God and as man, and you didn't use your Godhood to yourself, you used it to serve others. And you call us to do the same, Father, to, to reach out to a community that is desperately in need of you. Lord, we pray that as we go about our daily lives, that you will help our mindset, our attitudes to become more like you every day, to be able to reach out to those who are so desperately seeking something in their lives. They know they have a hole that they can't fill, and we tend to fill it with all sorts of things that, that aren't you. Help us to fill our lives with you. Help us to reach out to those around us so that they can also find you and fill their life with you too, Father. Help us to use our gifts and our talents for your service. And when the call comes, whom shall I send? May our response always be, here am I, send me. In your name, amen. Amen, wow.